Well, good morning. It's so good to see you this morning. So glad that we're gathered here for worship. And we're going to be looking at the Bible this morning. And I'm going to just tell you right up front, we're going to a lot of different passages of Scripture. So you're going to want to uh, just uh, get your Bible out. And we're going to be in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, Today, as we look at God's Word, we're going to be going uh, back to the Old Testament prophet Daniel. We're also going to be in the book of Revelation, and so this might be a little bit of a different kind of message this morning, um, but we're going to talk about the, uh, about the rise of Antichrist. You know, the Bible teaches us that before the Lord returns, there will be a supervillain that comes into this world that basically has control of the entire world, except for those who have given their lives to Christ. And so... Um, or those who convert themselves and come, become Christians during that time. And <clears throat> I want to uh, just share with you that as we look at God's Word this morning, I want to just give you a kind of a broad brush view, and then I want to make some pastoral comments about what it means and how we are to respond to the truth that there is going to be a terrible, terrible, evil, wicked man that comes on the scene and does great harm to the people of God and to the people of this world. Well, I want to just go ahead and jump right into it uh, this morning, and I want to invite you to take your Bible and go to Daniel chapter uh, chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. While you're going to Daniel chapter 11, and we're not going to stand up and read the Word this morning because we're going to be going to so many passages, I want us to have some time to, to be able to do that. But Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, and I think we actually have, a screen, have it on the screen. Matthew 24, verse number 15. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, just as a reminder, Jesus now is with his disciples, and they've come out of Jerusalem, and they've asked him questions about when will the end come. And last week, as we looked at this, we noted that before Jesus returns to this earth, before the day of the Lord occurs, there must be a regathering of Israel. And as they have regathered back into the Holy Land, they will rebuild the the temple that is, that is, they will, they will build the temple and they will begin sacrificing once again. This past week, one of my buddies said to me, you know, and, and mentioned the fact that there's really no need for a sacrifice now. And, and you're right, because Jesus has been that final sacrifice. But the reality is that those who are outside of Christ and those who are, who are firm, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're Jews who are practicing Judaism, they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Therefore, they're working to be able to get to that place where they can rebuild the temple and resume the sacrificial system that God gave them. And so Israel has to be regathered, and we've seen that beginning to happen. And... Uh, I tell you what, God is fulfilling his word. And then Jesus gives a clear-cut sign that his return is just right on the verge of happening. And so, 2415, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus is speaking to Jewish uh, boys, his disciples. 
And this specifically, they would understand this relates specifically to them in the end times. So in this passage of scripture, he speaks about the abomination of desolation. And and really what this means is this is a a detestable thing that causes uh, causes devastation or destruction. It's something very, uh, very wicked and very evil that happens in the temple itself, in the holy of holies. And Jesus said that's going to happen one day. And when you see this, you just better know that my return is very quickly coming. So, when Jesus referenced Daniel, let's go to Daniel chapter 11 and let's see what Jesus was talking about. Daniel chapter 11. By the way, Daniel's in the Old Testament for those of you who may be wondering and uh, he's one of the major prophets And so if you go to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you'll get to Daniel. And when you get to Daniel, go to Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel chapter 11, at verse 31 now, there's a a prophecy about the the Antichrist. And at this time, the Antichrist has taken control of some armies. And he is in war with some of the kings that will arise in the latter days. And in Daniel chapter 11, 11 verse 31 it says forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering this is a reference now to the antichrist coming to the rebuilt temple and stopping their uh, stopping the the, the daily sacrifices and then if you'll just kind of Look down a little bit further. It says in verse 32, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And let me just say to you, the last portion of that verse, the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. This is a pastoral point for us to understand that even when the Antichrist is in our midst, our obligation, if we know God, is to stand firm and take action. We have no recourse for being cowards. We have no uh, freedom to turn our back on the Lord. Even in the midst of great evil, God's people must stand firm. And I hope and pray you've got that kind of spirit in you. I know the Holy Spirit would prompt you. Well, the Bible tells us in this passage in Daniel chapter 11, if you look down into verse number 36, it says, And the king, and here it's speaking of the Antichrist now, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished For what is decreed shall be done. I want you to notice the scripture tells us that this man will assert himself to be God. Now it's interesting, when you look at historical accounts, what you find is that there have been several times when the the temple itself had been desecrated. There's a, a thing that happened in 167 A.D. I think we have a slide for that. 167, 167 not A.D., B.C., 167, 168, depending on what historian you're listening to and how they date it. But there was a guy by the name of Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Syrian ruler that came to power in that time, and that was during a time when the Maccabean Revolt had occurred. 
And he was such an egomaniac that he dubbed himself God manifest. That's what the word epiphanies means. He described himself as Antiochus, God manifest. He said, I am the manifestation of God. And he went into the temple and he was outraged because of the, uh, of the success of the Jewish re revolt that was going on. And he slaughtered a pig on the altar and then he erected a, uh, a, 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 a bust or a, a, a statue of the god Zeus and he required the priest to eat the pork that had been sacrificed to Zeus on the altar. He was just a wicked man. And he desecrated the temple. That was after Daniel had prophesied, but it was before Jesus. So we know that when Jesus prophesied and said that the abomination of desolation, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, we know that when Jesus said that, he was not referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. There was another desecration of the Jewish temple that took place in 70 A.D., and that was, or A.D. 70, and, and, and that was when the Roman general Titus came to Jerusalem. He destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. I told you about that last week. And they planted the Roman standard on the temple grounds, and the Roman standard had an eagle. And this was symbolic of saying that Caesar was God, that Rome was God, another desecration that took place. But Jesus and Daniel understood that in the end of time, which is future to us, there would be an abomination of desolation that exceeded all of those things. And the Apostle Paul understood about that as well. And so let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians. So if you have your Bible, you're going all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament. You're going to 2 Thessalonians. And the way I like to remember where that book is, is, of course, you remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, you remember Acts and uh, Romans, and I like to think of it as Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Georgia Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you'll get to 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and you're going to go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I, I apologize. I know this is kind of like being in school this morning, but it's kind of hard to get all this information in without jumping around a little bit. So we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and the church at Thessalonica was concerned because they thought maybe they'd missed the day of the Lord, and they were afraid that they were, you know, they were, they were suffering and they were struggling, and somebody had said, well, God's, Jesus has already come back, and you've already missed it. You're in trouble now. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to them, and let's pick up in verse number one. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, you might want to underline that word. That's another title of the Antichrist. He's called the man of lawlessness. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, 
the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now when the Roman general Titus came into Jerusalem and raised the city and destroyed the temple completely, he did not sit in the Holy of Holies and proclaim himself to be God. But Paul makes it very clear here that this is a man, a singular person, who desecrates the Holy of Holies, the temple, and proclaims himself to be God. Verse 5, picking up in 2 Thessalonians, it says, he, Paul says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now you know as you look at this passage of scripture it's very clear to us that the Bible scholars particularly as we look at this that this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, that he will be able to operate by a supernatural power, by a demonic power. This is why I personally believe that the antichrist is someone who is indwelt by Satan, or at least maybe, maybe not Satan, maybe he's indwelt by one of the higher, uh, the higher wicked angels that rebel with Satan. But the bottom line is that the Christian doctrine is that there is coming a day when a master of evil and intrigue is also called a master of intrigue in the Bible. He's a very smart uh, creature. He's uh, someone whose ego, of course, is huge, but when you're indwelt by, the, by Satan himself or by a demonic spirit, and particularly in this matter, a very powerful one, uh, you will have the hubris to declaim yourself to be God. You know, Satan has always wanted to be worshipped. If you look into the book of Isaiah and you read a little bit about the fall of Lucifer, what you find is that he desired to have the worship of the angels, and he has ever since desired to have the acclaim and the worship of man. And so as we look at this passage, the Bible reminds us that it is a truth, it's coming, and before the Lord returns, this is what will happen. Now take your Bible, if you would, and let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. Again, Daniel is having a vision of world empires, 
And you'll probably remember that Daniel had a vision uh, of when he saw a great statue and, and, um, and, and he talked about the rise of Babylon and Medo-Persia and, and the Greek Empire under Alexander and then the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, uh, well, I'd, I'd love to go into all the details, but I can't, okay? It's just too much stuff. And you'd probably go to sleep on me. And you'd probably say, where are we going with all this? So anyway, are y'all still with me? This is interesting stuff to me. And I know you may not have ever heard this before, but in Daniel chapter 7, in verse number 1, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And then if you just skip down for the sake of time to verse number 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Pause there for just a moment. This is a reference to the Roman Empire. The Babylonians were first. Then there were the, the Persians. Eventually, Alexander the Great came along, and then Rome conquered Greece and Alexander. And it's interesting because in the vision that Daniel gives of the statue, and he attributes the legs and the feet to the, to the, uh, the, the Roman Empire... Uh, it's interesting that they're divided in two. There's a right and a left side. And Bible scholars have likened this to the eastern, uh, the eastern empire of Rome that was headquartered in Constantinople and then the western uh, headquarters of Rome, which was in Rome. And so anyway, that's just something else there. But anyway, Daniel has this vision. He sees this fourth beast. This fourth beast is Rome. And then it has ten horns, and that describes ten kings that will arise out of the Roman Empire. And when it speaks about the ten horns here, it's speaking about what many Bible scholars believe to be the revived Roman Empire, because the next verse itself, verse 8, deals specifically with the rise of Antichrist in the end days. Verse number 8. I considered the horns... And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This passage tells us that out of... A future empire, there will be ten kings, and then there will be one who rises to the top, and he usurps the authority of three of those kings, and he takes over. Daniel chapter 7, it says, in verse 19, he says, I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. In verse 20, he wanted to know about the, 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 the three uh, the three 
horns that fell or the three kings that fell and then the horn that had the eyes and a mouth that spoke great things. And, and if you look down in verse number uh, 24, it says this of Daniel 7. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This is speaking about the rise of the Antichrist and how he will, he will have power for a certain amount of time. And that the people will be subjected to him. If you look in Daniel chapter 9 then, we have a little bit more information that kind of references the Antichrist, but also about the coming of Jesus. So look at Daniel chapter 9, just a moment, and verse number 25. And, and this is very interesting to me because when you look at this verse, it makes crystal clear that Messiah, Jesus Christ, is, he came to, to, into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And what's interesting is that this ties it historically to the ruler Cyrus. Now, just to give you the setting here, the people of Israel have been deported. They're away from, this is before Jesus now. But they have been, they, they were, they were, shipped all over the world they were taken to babylon they were you know they, they basically were removed from the holy land they were enslaved uh ezekiel says they were hanging out by the river kabar and they were singing their songs of lament and sadness because they'd been removed from the holy land but one day the persian ruler silas excuse me cyrus he was able to defeat the babylonians and out of I believe what it was, the, 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 the prompting of the Lord, he issued a decree so that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. And so in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's got this vision and he's received the understanding of this vision and it says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now, pause there for just a moment. I don't want you to get caught up in, in, in the numbers so much, but I want to tell you that this passage, when it refers to seven weeks, it's talking about every, every year, or excuse me, every week represents a year, Okay. So it says, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. And this would refer to the rebuilding of the temple, um, you know, before Jesus was, was born. Herod built the temple for the Jewish people, rebuilt it, but it was troubled time. And verse 26 and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Verse 26 is a specific reference to the arrival of Jesus on Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. 
And, and I just share this with you because this is a historical verification that when Jesus came into Jerusalem and the crowds cried out, Hosanna in the name of the Lord, you know, it was a fulfillment of this prophecy all the way from Cyrus now to Jesus, okay? And that's one reason why, you know, we're just, again, it's another reason to, to accept the Lord as Messiah. All right. But it says in verse 26, now we get to the Antichrist. And in verse 26, the latter part of that verse, it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now I want you to hang on to that phrase, the people of the prince who is to come. Who were those people? Those were the Romans who in A.D. 70 destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And they are the people of the prince who is to come. This is a reference to the Antichrist. Anyway, the people of the prince who is to come, they will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood, and there, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27 says, And he, this is the Antichrist, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Again, that's seven years. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offerings, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So, this passage tells us that the Antichrist is coming out of a ten-king kingdom, that he supplants or usurps authority of three kings in the process. It tells us that in this passage that he makes a strong covenant with, with the people of Israel for one week, for seven years. But then it tells us that about half of that, which would be three and a half years, he breaks the covenant. They, this is called the covenant of death in the Bible. It, it's when the Antichrist comes to Israel and he says, I will protect you for seven years. And this is what we believe will happen. You know, right now, Israel is surrounded right now with enemies. I mean, you've, you've got enemies to their south. You know, you've got Saudi Arabia down there, and you've got, you know, a lot of radical uh, uh, Islamic factions. To the east, you have Egypt, and Egypt, or excuse me, to the west of Israel, you have Egypt, and Egypt is, you know, they have an alignment right now with Israel, but they have traditionally been against Israel. You go further to the north, and you've got Turkey there, and then you have the land of Russia, which Bible scholars believe that's Gog and Magog. And if you look in Ezekiel 37 and 38, you will see that there's coming a time when a war will occur, and these forces will come down to try and destroy Israel. If you look to the, the east of Israel, what you will see is you'll see uh, Syria, and you'll see, you know, uh, I guess it would kind of to the east and south, you, you have Jordan and some of these other Arab countries, but Israel is right now surrounded by her enemies. And yet this guy comes in, he proclaims himself to be the Messiah, and he says, I will offer you peace for seven years, and they sign it. And when they did that, and when they do that, they will be... they will be aligning themselves with a false Messiah... And they will suffer for it. 
because something happens, and some people believe that it may be the war of Gog and Magog um, that, that flips in the Antichrist's mind, and he decides, okay, I'm over this, and I'm about to go ahead, and I'm about to take over completely. And so he stops the daily sacrifice. And remember, we said last week that Israel has to be regathered. And in that process of regathering, they rebuild the temple. And their desire is to restart the sacrificial system. Well, he will stop that. And he will proclaim, as Paul said, he will stand in the holy place and he will proclaim himself to be God. And he will blaspheme. And so after three and a half years, that takes place. All right. Uh, you know, as we look at this, there are, there are a number of different passages. Let me just, let me take you to the book of Revelation. Let me take you to the book of Revelation. There's another picture here of the Antichrist. And uh, we go Daniel, we've got Paul, we've got what Jesus said. And now we come to the vision that John the Apostle had while he was on the Isle of Patmos. And in Revelation chapter 6, John is looking at the throne room. And, uh, and, and, th- at this point in time, it's about to begin. The return of Christ is, is, is in process. And the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, is there. And the Bible says that a scroll is handed to the Lamb. And this scroll uh, some have, is called the title deed to the earth, okay? But at any rate, as you look at this in Revelation chapter 6, verse number 1, John says, Now I watched... When the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. I wish I could say, Come, like Adrian Rogers. Come. And the Bible says, that wasn't very good, I know. Anyway, in verse 2 it says, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Contrary to what what some might believe, this is not the Lord. This is the Antichrist. He comes out on a white horse. He has a bow, but no arrows. He comes under the guise of peace, but it's very clear here that when the seal is broken, he comes out to conquer and conquering and to conquer. It's interesting, when you look at Revelation, it talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and one is the, is the white horse, and that's the Antichrist. And then you've got a, a black horse, and I believe that's the, no, not the black horse. Well, anyway, there's a horse that represents famine, there's a horse that represents plague, and there's a horse that represents war. The red horse represents war. But anyway, the rider comes out, the white horse, and this is the Antichrist. Now, take your Bible and go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, I promise you we're getting to something applicable in just a moment or two. But I want you to see this, because this is another vision, another picture of the rise of Antichrist. Revelation 13. And, and while we're in Revelation, can, let me just let me clarify something that might help you. If you start trying to read the book of Revelation in a chronological order, you're going to get confused, okay? Because sometimes it repeats back over and things like that. So I just want to let you know before you get too confused trying to read through it. But anyway, Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power. 
and his throne and great authority. The dragon here is a reference to the devil. Okay? One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Now, this is another reference to the Antichrist because in the Bible it says that he will be wounded and that, you know, there'll be kind of a miraculous revival of life and therefore people will be prone to believe that the Antichrist is the Christ. Okay? And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The beast is another name for the Antichrist. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It sounds just like the guy that Daniel prophesied and Paul talked about here haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation." And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the Bible tells us that this demonically indwelt individual will be given power. He will rule the whole world. You're probably familiar with some of the passages that say that, uh, that those who receive the mark of the beast, that they will uh, they'll end up in the lake of fire. And, the, and you're probably also familiar that the Bible teaches that the Antichrist will have such an iron grip on the world that you will not be able to buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast. It identifies... Uh, his, this person by the number 666, which is why when, whenever you see, you know, occultic symbiology or, or symbols or whatever, oftentimes you'll see that 666, that's a reference to the Antichrist. And some people have tried to figure out just who the Antichrist is by, you know, figuring out these numbers. And bottom line is that 666 is the number of man. And, and somehow or another, it is directly related to him. And I don't, fully understand all of that except to say that this person is a real person that will bring great destruction to the world. Some people believed at one time that the Pope was the Antichrist. The Reformers believed that. Um, some people today believe that the Antichrist must be a Jewish man and he's probably coming from the tribe of Dan. Some people believe that he must be a Gentile because, uh, you know, because he rises out of a, Roman, a revived Roman empire of ten kings. Because remember, these are the people of the prince who is to come and they were Romans. What's interesting to me is some people believe that the Antichrist is going to be an Islamic ruler. And, there, the, and, and Rosenberg is one of those that believes that. And what he says is, remember, the Roman, 
empire was divided by east and west, and it corresponds to the two legs and the two feet of the statue that, uh, that, that was there that Daniel saw the vision of, and, and the, the western was Rome, and the eastern was Constantinople, and as you know, uh, the eastern Roman empire was conquered by Islamic forces. Folks, I don't really know who it is. And I would dare to say probably we don't need to try to speculate too much about this. But I will say this. If you and I actually witness and see that a seven-year peace pact is established with some world ruler for the nation of Israel that provides safety for them so that they can dwell in villages that are unwalled, as the Bible says, then you and I better pray that God helps us because we are in the middle of something really, really bad that's going down. Now, my big hope is that we get raptured before that happens. Anybody here want to be raptured before the tribulation hour? I do. I mean, I think any sane person would want to. But there are some that believe that we will not, that we will experience the wrath of Antichrist. Be that as it, as it is, I, I think that, you know, here's, what I've, here's how i got to close this message, because I know this has probably been like being to school for you. You're already worn out. But i got some good news for you. There's some personal, practical things that come out of this. First of all, discernment. As God's people, we need to be discerning about religious ideologies and belief systems and, uh, and social beliefs and things that, that try to get at the heart of who we are as humans and who God is and all of this sort of thing. John warns us, the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, that the spirit of Antichrist is already among us. And one of the things about the spirit of Antichrist is that the spirit of Antichrist is at work in those who deny that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God. If you look in 1 John chapter 2, you will see that John makes it crystal clear to the church at Ephesus that those who deny the deity of Christ and His incarnation are fueled by the spirit of Antichrist. And there are a lot of belief systems out there that deny that Jesus is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God. One of those is Islam. And one of those, I hate to say it, is, is Mormonism. And, and the reason why we know that is because they believe that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers and that Jehovah God gave both of them birth. So they have a very faulty view of who Jesus really is. They don't accept him as God incarnate. They, well, they accept him as you know, the son of God who came down and he became a God, but they don't accept him like we do. And if you start looking at different ideologies, you have to see that as John said, if you deny the Father and the Son, then you have denied both. And John warns us about that. This is why if, if we're going to, as we come into this, this season and this time of, of end times, how many of y'all have seen the deep fakes that are going on right now with videos? Have you guys seen any deep fakes? 
I mean, it is crazy what they can do right now. They, can, they, can, they could have me saying some really bad things if they wanted to, and you might think that it was really me saying it and doing it, but it would be a deep fake. At least by the mercy of God, it would be a deep fake. I wouldn't do that kind of stuff. But they can make you believe that, that, you know, that, that it's just what I'm saying is there's such deception. And the Bible says when Antichrist comes, he will be empowered by Satan and he will bring mass deception. And therefore, we need to be very discerning. Let me just share this with you. If you have a belief system that runs counter to what the Lord teaches in His Word, you need to be able to discern that and run from it because it is out of the pit. And John warns about that. And the Bible says that if we acknowledge that Jesus has come in the flesh, this is what John says in 2 John verse 7, the person who acknowledges and confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and those who don't are of the spirit of Antichrist. So I would say discernment, okay? Secondly, an undeviating attachment. And what I mean by that is if we're going to, what, what can we do in light of this rise of evil? Be fully devoted to staying with Christ, abiding in Him. 1 John 2 verse number 28, now little children, Abide in Him. Remain in Christ. Stay close to Him. Read His Word. Let His Word uh, live in your life. Abide in Him so that when He appears, you will have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. The Bible says that everyone who is born of God confesses Jesus and they abide in Him. Now there's another obligation and that is an un hindered detachment. What do I mean by this? Take your Bible and go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I know this is taking a little bit. We kind of jumped all over the place this morning and there's, there's so much. This is why prophecy is such a difficult, sub, difficult subject because everything's got to coincide, you know, uh, all across the pages of scripture if it's going to make sense. But in in 1 John, that's the epistle of John, not the gospel. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says it like this. And I promise you, we are almost done, guys. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, this does not mean that you should not love people or that you should not enjoy the world that God has given you to live in. It means that you are not to love the world system, which is a philosophy that, you know, that, that, that we might say ranges from you know, um, the material and, and everything that is pleasurable and everything that is uh, of a material nature, that that is all there is, or that's, you know, it, you just, you get tied up in this world system where uh, it's, it's all about, you know, the treasures of the world, so to speak, or the life that you have that, that's in this world. And, and you, he says, don't love that. In other words, the idea here is that believers are going to love God before they love everything else. And if you love God, then you'll then you'll have the right attitude towards others. Verse 16 says it like this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know, it's kind of hard for me to try to explain this, but this does not teach us that, you know, that we, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. That, that is the truth. And we have, you know, we, we're, we're here now, but the reality is there's, there's a whole other realm of existence. There's a spiritual realm that has more reality than the physical realm. And if I tie myself up to only thinking about living for this world, this material world, this, the things that this world offers, then I am going to be in trouble because it's all going away. How many of you clipped your fingernails or your toenails sometime this week? Anybody? You know what? Your, your fingernails and your toenails, they grow and then they're gone, you know? I mean, again, I'm getting real with you, okay? I know. But think about it for just a moment. You're getting older. Your time is passing. And I think the longer we live, the more we realize there's something more than just, you know, the world. And, and, and John is saying that, look, if you, if you desire all of the world, but you neglect the Lord and the promise of God, you're in trouble. Now, let's make this a little bit clearer, maybe. Let's go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. This is, kind of talks about that unhindered detachment. It doesn't mean that I'm going to go up on a mountainside somewhere and I'm not going to have anything to do with the world. No, I'm in the world. I'm not of the world, but I'm going to go through the world and do what God's called me to do. But in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said it like this, and maybe this will clarify for you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What that means is if you follow Christ, you're going to have to turn your back on some self-interest here, okay? Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus makes it very plain that there is an opportunity for us to turn our lives over to Christ and to follow Him. And all of the treasures of the world are not worth the loss of not having Christ. It means love God. It means love God and love the truth in Christ before anything else in this world. This is why Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There's another thing I want you to see, and, and this is important for believers, because if we don't do this, if we don't fully believe and trust that God is with us, when the day of evil comes, we will fall. The Bible says that God is with us, and he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. 
And I, I like to think of this as I go through life and my obligation, in spite of the fact that the world is wicked and evil, is that there is within me a belief-inspired assurance that God is with me. In other words, I know that the Lord is with me. Not because I always have an ooey-gooey feeling. Please, don't get me wrong. This is not about you having an ooey-gooey feeling. If you depend on your feelings, you're going to be in trouble one day. But your assurance and your faith is based on the promise of the Lord who promised that if we receive Him, He gives us the right to become children of God. And as we confess Him before others, the Bible tells us that He puts His Holy Spirit in us and we belong to Him. And I just have to tell you, there are some long days in life, aren't there? And if I go through that day wondering, man, God, are you with me? Did you forget me? Did you leave me by the wayside? I'm going to be a sad sack. But if I can go through life with the assurance that he is with me, then I will be bold and I will have hope. I've got to tell you something. The Apostle Paul told the church at Ephesus that you and your life is a testimony to the rulers of this age, to the heavenly forces, that God is doing something great and wonderful in people who've accepted Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I know you're struggling right now, and I don't want you to lose heart over what you're going through, because your glory is in the Lord, and God is telling the entire universe, the entire created order of something wonderful that he's done in your life. Because you've accepted him and you choose to follow him. I tell you what, there's a bad day coming. But Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill the body. But you fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And if you fear him, you don't have to fear Man, Well, we got to wrap this up here, but I want to just tell you, the Bible tells us that one day evil is going to rise, and I hope I'm not here to see that happen, but it is going to happen. And the good news is that the Lord will be with us and He'll help us. Now, we're going to have a time of, uh, a time of worship, this last song, and maybe God's prompting you about some things in your life, and, and I just want you to know that, that myself, Pastor Sean, Pastor Mark, we're here to be an encouragement to you. And so if, if God's called you to some kind of personal commitment, we want to walk with you in that. So let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Father, help us to understand how all of this makes a difference in our lives. And Lord, we just rejoice in the promise that we have that you have not destined us for wrath, but you've destined us for glory for mercy, for hope. So Lord, I just pray you'll be with my brothers and sisters now and you'll inspire us to do great things for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.